Chapter Seven of Mrs. Dalloway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Chapter Seven. Evans, Evans, he cried. Mr. Smith was talking aloud to himself. Agnes, the servant girl, cried to Mrs. Filmer in the kitchen. Evans, Evans, he had said as she brought in the tray. She jumped, she did. She scuttled downstairs. And Razia came in, with her flowers, and walked across the room, and put the roses in a vase, upon which the sun struck directly, and it went laughing, leaping round the room. She had had to buy the roses, Razia said, from a poor man in the street. But they were almost dead already, she said, arranging the roses. So there was a man outside, Evans presumably, and the roses, which Razia said were half dead, had been picked by him in the fields of Greece. Communication is health, communication is happiness, communication, he muttered. What are you saying, Septimus? Razia asked, wild with terror, for he was talking to himself. She sent Agnes running for Dr. Holmes. Her husband, she said, was mad. He scarcely knew her. You brute! You brute! cried Septimus, seeing human nature, that is, Dr. Holmes, enter the room. Now, what's this all about? said Dr. Holmes, in the most amiable way in the world talking nonsense to frighten your wife but he would give him something to make him sleep and if they were rich people said dr holmes looking ironically round the room by all means let them go to harley street if they had no confidence in him said dr holmes looking not quite so kind it was precisely twelve o'clock twelve by big ben whose stroke was wafted over the northern part of london blent with that of other clocks mixed in a thin ethereal way with the clouds and wisps of smoke and died up there among the seagulls twelve o'clock struck as clarissa dalloway laid her green dress on her bed and the warren smiths walked down harley street twelve was the hour of their appointment probably razia thought that was Sir William Bradshaw's house with the grey motor-car in front of it. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Indeed it was, Sir William Bradshaw's motor-car, low, powerful, grey with plain initials interlocked on the panel, as if the pomps of heraldry were incongruous, this man being the ghostly helper, the priest of science, and, as the motor-car was grey, so to match its sober suavity grey furs silver grey rugs were heaped in it to keep her ladyship warm while she waited for often sir william would travel sixty miles or more down into the country to visit the rich the afflicted who could afford the very large fee which sir william very properly charged for his advice her ladyship waited with the rugs about her knees an hour or more, leaning back, thinking sometimes of the patient, sometimes, excusably, of the wall of gold, 
mounting minute by minute while she waited. The wall of gold that was mounting between them and all shifts and anxieties. She had borne them bravely, they had had their struggles, until she felt wedged on a calm ocean where only spice winds blow, respected, admired, envied, with scarcely anything left to wish for, though she regretted her stoutness. Large dinner parties every Thursday night to the profession, an occasional bazaar to be opened, royalty greeted, too little time, alas, with her husband, whose work grew and grew, a boy doing well at Eton. She would have liked a daughter, too. Interests she had, however, in plenty, child welfare, the aftercare of the epileptic, and photography, so that if there was a church building, or a church decaying, she bribed the sexton, got the key and took photographs, which were scarcely to be distinguished from the work of professionals, while she waited. Sir William himself was no longer young. He had worked very hard. He had won his position by sheer ability, being the son of a shopkeeper, loved his profession, made a fine figurehead at ceremonies, and spoke well, all of which had by the time he was knighted given him a heavy look, a weary look, the stream of patience being so incessant, the responsibilities and privileges of his profession so onerous, which weariness, together with his gray hairs, increased the extraordinary distinction of his presence, and gave him the reputation of the utmost importance in dealing with nerve cases, not merely of lightning skill and almost infallible accuracy in diagnosis, but of sympathy, tact, understanding of the human soul. He could see the first moment they came into the room, the Warren Smiths, they were called. He was certain directly he saw the man. It was a case of extreme gravity. It was a case of complete breakdown, complete physical and nervous breakdown. With every symptom in an advanced stage, he ascertained in two or three minutes, writing answers to questions, murmured discreetly on a pink card. How long had Dr. Holmes been attending him? Six weeks. Prescribed a little bromide? Said there was nothing the matter? Ah, yes, those general practitioners, thought Sir William. It took half his time to undo their blunders. Some were irreparable. You served with great distinction in the war? The patient repeated the word war interrogatively. He was attaching meanings to words of a symbolical kind, a serious symptom to be noted on the card. The war, the patient asked? The European war, that little shindy of schoolboys with gunpowder? Had he served with distinction? He really forgot. In the war itself, he had failed. Yes, he served with the greatest distinction, Brazia assured the doctor. He was promoted. And they have the very highest opinion of you at your office, Sir William murmured, glancing at Mr. Brewer's very generously worded letter. So that you have nothing to worry you, no financial anxiety, nothing? He had committed an appalling crime and been condemned to death by human nature. I have, I have he began, committed a crime. He has done nothing wrong whatever, Razia assured the doctor. If Mr. Smith would wait, said Sir William, 
he would speak to mrs smith in the next room her husband was very seriously ill sir william said did he threaten to kill himself oh he did she cried but he did not mean it she said of course not it was merely a question of rest said sir william of rest 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 a long rest in bed there was a delightful home down in the country where her husband would be perfectly looked after away from her she asked unfortunately yes the people we care for most are not good for us when we are ill but he was not mad was he sir william said he never spoke of madness he called it not having a sense of proportion but her husband did not like doctors he would refuse to go there shortly and kindly sir william explained to her the state of the case he had threatened to kill himself there was no alternative it was a question of law he would lie in bed in a beautiful house in the country the nurses were admirable sir william would visit him once a week if mrs warren smith was quite sure she had no more questions to ask he never hurried his patients they would return to her husband she had nothing more to ask not of sir william so they returned to the most exalted of mankind the criminal who faced his judges the victim exposed on the heights the fugitive the drowned sailor the poet of the immortal ode the lord who had gone from life to death to septimus warren smith who sat in the armchair under the skylight staring at a photograph of lady bradshaw in court dress muttering messages about beauty we have had our little talk said sir william he says you are very very ill razia cried we have been arranging that you should go into a home said sir william one of holmes's homes sneered septimus the fellow made a distasteful impression for there was in sir william whose father had been a tradesman a natural respect for breeding and clothing which shabbiness nettled again more profoundly there was in sir william who had never had time for reading a grudge deeply buried against cultivated people who came into his room and intimated that doctors whose profession is a constant strain upon all the highest faculties are not educated men one of my homes mr warren smith he said where we will teach you to rest and there was just one thing more he was quite certain that when mr warren smith was well he was the last man in the world to frighten his wife but he had talked of killing himself we all have our moments of depression said sir william once you fall septimus repeated to himself human nature is on you holmes and bradshaw are on you they scour the desert they fly screaming into the wilderness the rack and the thumbscrew are applied human nature is remorseless impulses came upon him sometimes sir william asked with his pencil on a pink card that was his own affair said septimus nobody lives for himself alone said sir william glancing at the photograph of his wife in court dress and you have a brilliant career before you said sir william there was mr brewer's letter on the table an exceptionally brilliant career but if he confessed if he communicated would they let him off then his torturers i 
I, he stammered. But what was his crime? He could not remember it. Yes, Sir William encouraged him, but it was growing late. Love, trees, there is no crime. What was his message? He could not remember it. I, I, Septimus stammered. Try to think as little about yourself as possible, said Sir William kindly. Really, he was not fit to be about. Was there anything else they wished to ask him? Sir William would make all the arrangements, he murmured to Razia, and he would let her know between five and six that evening, he murmured. Trust everything to me, he said, and dismissed them. Never, never had Razia felt such agony in her life. She had asked for help and been deserted. He had failed them. Sir William Bradshaw was not a nice man. The upkeep of that motor car alone must cost him quite a lot, said Septimus, when they got out into the street. She clung to his arm. They had been deserted. But what more did she want? To his patience, he gave three quarters of an hour. And if in this exacting science, which has to do with what, after all, we know nothing about, the nervous system, the human brain, a doctor loses his sense of proportion, as a doctor he fails. Health we must have, and health is proportion, so that when a man comes into your room and says he is Christ, a common delusion, and has a message, as they mostly have, and threatens, as they often do, to kill himself, you invoke proportion, order rest in bed, rest in solitude, silence and rest, rest without friends, without books, without messages, six months rest, until a man who went in weighing seven stone six comes out weighing twelve. Proportion, divine proportion, Sir William's goddess, was acquired by Sir William walking hospitals, catching salmon, begetting one son in Harley Street by Lady Bradshaw, who caught salmon herself and took photographs scarcely to be distinguished from the work of professionals. Worshipping proportion, Sir William not only prospered himself, but made England prosper, secluded her lunatics, forbade childbirth, penalized despair, made it impossible for the unfit to propagate their views until they, too, shared his sense of proportion. His, if they were men, Lady Bradshaw's, if they were women. She embroidered, knitted, spent four nights out of seven at home with her son, so that not only did his colleagues respect him, his subordinates fear him, but the friends and relations of his patients felt for him the keenest gratitude for insisting that these prophetic Christs and Christesses, who prophesied the end of the world, or the advent of God, should drink milk in bed, as Sir William ordered. Sir William, with his thirty years' experience of these kinds of cases, and his infallible instinct, this is madness, this sense, in fact his sense of proportion. But proportion has a sister, less smiling, more formidable, a goddess even now engaged, in the heat and sands of India, the mud and swamp of Africa, the purlieus of London, wherever in short the climate or the devil tempts men, to fall from the true belief which is her own, is even now engaged in dashing down shrines, smashing idols, 
and setting up in their place her own stern countenance conversion is her name and she feasts on the wills of the weakly loving to impress to impose adoring her own features stamped on the face of the populace at hyde park corner on a tub she stands preaching shrouds herself in white and walks penitentially disguised as brotherly love through factories and parliaments offers help but desires power smites out of her way roughly the dissentient or dissatisfied bestows her blessing on those who looking upward catch submissively from her eyes the light of their own this lady too razia warren smith divined it had her dwelling in sir william's heart though concealed as she mostly is under some plausible disguise some venerable name love duty self-sacrifice how he would work how toil to raise funds propagate reforms initiate institutions but conversions fastidious goddess loves blood better than brick and feasts most subtly on the human will for example lady bradshaw fifteen years ago she had gone under it was nothing you could put your finger on there had been no scene no snap only the slow sinking waterlogged of her will into his sweet was her smile swift her submission dinner in harley street numbering eight or nine courses feeding ten or fifteen guests of the professional classes was smooth and urbane only as the evening wore on a very slight dullness or uneasiness perhaps a nervous twitch fumble stumble and confusion indicated what it was really painful to believe that the poor lady lied once long ago she had caught salmon freely now quick to minister to the craving which lit her husband's eye so oilily for dominion for power she cramped squeezed pared pruned drew back peeped through so that without knowing precisely what made the evening disagreeable and caused this pressure on the top of the head which might well be imputed to the professional conversation or the fatigue of a great doctor whose life lady bradshaw said is not his own but his patient's disagreeable it was so that guests when the clock struck ten breathed in the air of harley street even with rapture which relief however was denied to his patience there in the grey room with the pictures on the wall and the valuable furniture under the ground glass skylight they learnt the extent of their transgressions huddled up in armchairs they watched him go through for their benefit a curious exercise with the arms which he shot out brought sharply back to his hip to prove if the patient was obstinate that sir william was master of his own actions which the patient was not there some weakly broke down sobbed submitted others inspired by heaven knows what intemperate madness called sir william to his face a damnable humbug questioned even more impiously life itself why live they demanded sir william replied that life was good certainly lady bradshaw in ostrich feathers hung over the mantelpiece and as for his income it was quite twelve thousand a year but to us they protested life has given no such bounty 
he acquiesced they lacked a sense of proportion and perhaps after all there is no god he shrugged his shoulders in short this living or not living is an affair of our own but there they were mistaken sir william had a friend in surrey where they taught what sir william frankly admitted was a difficult art a sense of proportion there were moreover family affection honour courage and a brilliant career all of these had in sir william a resolute champion if they failed him he had to support police and the good of society which he remarked very quietly would take care down in surrey that these unsocial impulses bred more than anything by the lack of good blood were held in control and then stole out from her hiding-place and mounted her throne that goddess whose lust is to override opposition to stamp indelibly in the sanctuaries of others the image of herself naked defenceless the exhausted the friendless received the impress of sir william's will he swooped he devoured he shut people up it was this combination of decision and humanity that endeared sir william so greatly to the relations of his victims but razia warren smith cried walking down harley street that she did not like that man shredding and slicing dividing and subdividing the clocks of harley street nibbled at the june day counseled submission upheld authority and pointed out in chorus the supreme advantages of a sense of proportion until the mound of time was so far diminished that a commercial clock suspended above a shop in oxford street announced genially and fraternally as if it were a pleasure to messers rigby and lounds to give the information gratis that it was half past one looking up it appeared that each letter of their names stood for one of the hours subconsciously one was grateful to rigby and lounds for giving one time ratified by greenwich and this gratitude so hugh whitbread ruminated dallying there in front of the shop window naturally took the form later of buying off rigby and lounds socks or shoes so he ruminated it was his habit he did not go deeply he brushed surfaces the dead languages the living life in constantinople paris rome riding shooting tennis it had been once the malicious asserted that he now kept guard at buckingham palace dressed in silk stockings and knee breeches over what nobody knew but he did it extremely efficiently he had been afloat on the cream of english society for fifty-five years he had known prime ministers his affections were understood to be deep and if it were true that he had not taken part in any of the great movements of the time or held important office one or two humble reforms stood to his credit an improvement in public shelters was one the protection of owls in norfolk another servant girls had reason to be grateful to him and his name at the end of letters to the times asking for funds appealing to the public to protect to preserve to clear up litter to abate smoke and stamp out immorality in parks commanded respect a magnificent figure he cut too pausing for a moment as the sound of the half-hour died away to look critically magisterially 
at socks and shoes, impeccable, substantial, as if he beheld the world from a certain eminence, and dressed to match, but realized the obligations which size, wealth, health entail, and observed punctiliously, even when not absolutely necessary, little courtesies, old-fashioned ceremonies, which gave a quality to his manner, something to imitate, something to remember him by, for he would never lunch, for example, with Lady Bruton, whom he had known these twenty years, without bringing her in his outstretched hand a bunch of carnations, and asking Miss Brush, Lady Bruton's secretary, after her brother in South Africa, which, for some reason, Miss Brush, deficient though she was in every attribute of female charm, so much resented that she said, Thank you, he's doing very well in South Africa, when, for half a dozen years, he had been doing badly in Portsmouth. Lady Bruton herself preferred Richard Dalloway, who arrived at the next moment. Indeed, they met on the doorstep. Lady Bruton preferred Richard Dalloway, of course. He was made of much finer material. But she wouldn't let them run down her poor dear Hugh. She could never forget his kindness. He had been really remarkably kind. She forgot precisely upon what occasion. But he had been remarkably kind. Anyhow, the difference between one man and another does not amount to much. She had never seen the sense of cutting people up as Clarissa Dalloway did, cutting them up and sticking them together again, not at any rate when one was sixty-two. She took Hugh's carnations with her angular, grim smile. There was nobody else coming, she said. She had got them there on false pretenses, to help her out of a difficulty. But let us eat first, she said. And so there began a soundless and exquisite passing to and fro through swing doors of aproned white-capped maids, handmaidens not of necessity, but adepts in a mystery or grand deception practiced by hostesses in Mayfair from one thirty to two, when, with a wave of the hand, the traffic ceases, and there rises instead this profound illusion in the first place about the food, how it is not paid for, and then that the table spreads itself voluntarily with glass and silver, little mats, saucers of red fruit, films of brown cream mask turbot, in casseroles severed chicken swim, colored undomestic, the fire burns, and with the wine and the coffee not paid for, rise jocund visions before musing eyes, gently speculative eyes, eyes to whom life appears musical, mysterious, eyes now kindled to observe genially the beauty of the red carnations which Lady Bruton, whose movements were always angular, had laid beside her plate, so that Hugh Whitbread, feeling at peace with the entire universe and at the same time completely sure of his standing, said, resting his fork, wouldn't they look charming against your lace? Miss Brush resented this familiarity intensely. She thought him an underbred fellow. She made Lady Bruton laugh. Lady Bruton raised the carnations, holding them rather stiffly, with much the same attitude with which the general held the scroll in the picture behind her. She remained fixed, tranced. Which was she now? The general's great-granddaughter? Great-great-granddaughter? 
Richard Dalloway asked himself, Sir Roderick, Sir Miles, Sir Talbot. That was it. It was remarkable how in that family the likeness persisted in the woman. She should have been a general of dragoons herself, and Richard would have served under her, cheerfully. He had the greatest respect for her. He cherished these romantic views about well-set-up old women of pedigree, and would have liked, in his good-humoured way, to bring some young hotheads of his acquaintance to lunch with her, as if a type like hers could be bred of amiable tea-drinking enthusiasts. He knew her country. He knew her people. There was a vine still bearing, which either Lovelace or Herrick, she never read a word poetry of herself, but so the story ran, had sat under. Better wait to put before them the question that bothered her, about making an appeal to the public, if so, in what terms, and so on. Better wait until they have had their coffee, Lady Bruton thought, and so laid the carnations down beside her plate. How's Clarissa? she asked abruptly. Clarissa always said that Lady Bruton did not like her. Indeed, Lady Bruton had the reputation of being more interested in politics than people, of talking like a man, of having had a finger in some notorious intrigue of the eighties, which was now beginning to be mentioned in memoirs. Certainly, there was an alcove in her drawing-room, and a table in that alcove, and a photograph upon that table of General Sir Talbot Moore, now deceased, who had written there one evening in the eighties, in Lady Bruton's presence, with her cognizance, perhaps advice, a telegram ordering the British troops to advance upon a historical occasion. She kept the pen and told the story. Thus, when she said in her offhand way, House Clarissa, husbands had difficulty in persuading their wives, and indeed, however devoted, were secretly doubtful themselves, of her interest in women who often got in their husbands' way prevented them from accepting posts abroad, and had to be taken to the seaside in the middle of the session to recover from influenza. Nevertheless, her inquiry, House Clarissa, was known by women infallibly, to be a signal from a well-wisher, from an almost silent companion, whose utterances, half a dozen perhaps in the course of a lifetime, signified recognition of some feminine comradeship, which went beneath masculine lunch parties and united Lady Bruton and Mrs. Dalloway, who seldom met and appeared when they did meet indifferent and even hostile in a singular bond. End of chapter 7